This is Pablo Escobar, Escape from la Catedral. The tapes you are about to hear have been translated and dramatized by voice actors. Listen, uh, uh, things are going down as usual over here, you know. Um, he is pretty annoyed because his car was stolen, he is annoyed, uh, uh, and you know, law and order is enforcing town. Yes, but when he gets out... So, that's what we're doing, we're, we're talking to the house get to the house because the man comes in and he's angry and the law is beside us and we're in a van. Just don't get too close to me. Stay back. Yes, but he's calling me. He's calling me every two or three days. Okay, okay, but don't get too close. Stay back a bit. R. Stay back R. Yes, yes. Copy that. Copy that R. Can you ask for travel expenses? We aren't completely sure who Escobar is talking to or what sort of surveillance operation he is planning. But they are a window into how Pablo Escobar ran his criminal empire. An empire that on June 1991, many Colombians thought was finished because that is the day that Pablo Escobar checked into prison. This is the story of espionage and counter-espionage of intelligence and counterintelligence. The lines between good and bad are often blurry. Power operates best when it's in the shadow, and as such, it can often be murky and confusing. He says it went well because since he arrived, he went straight to Casa de Nariño from the airport, and he spoke to the guy, and the guy was very responsive. The only issue was the problem with the United States. So one of them committed to a truce until Tuesday. But the other one, the other one said, we already gave the order to screw everyone over. So My name is Jorge Ramos. I am the nightly news anchor for Univision News. I have covered the drug trade all over Latin America for over 30 years. When I was approached to do this podcast, I had to say yes because it involved listening to a mysterious set of 35 tapes that were sent to a production company in Mexico called Detective. The package simply read, Escobar Tapes. To try to bring a bit of order to the chaos, the new Gaviria administration needed to do something. The man Gaviria tasked with the job was a man named Rafael Pardo. He developed something he called the policy of subjugation. I was working as a minister for peace. And on August 7, Gaviria takes office. So at the end of August, I went to his office and told him, I have a few ideas that will solve that. That will help us to punish the drug traffickers. And that's when we started the policy of subjugation. After three days with the Minister of Justice, we finished drafting the policy of subjugation. And that time, they had kidnapped three journalists. One of them was the daughter of the party leader. As Garcia Marquez tell on his book, News of a Kidnapping. That's when the policy of subjugation start. The policy of subjugation 
was a framework in which the great drug traffickers of Cali and Medellin could turn themselves in without facing harsh punishment. The Constitutional Assembly also drafted a clause that would eliminate extradition to the United States because that is what the drug lords feared the most. By 45 affirmative votes, the complete article has been approved. The extradition of Colombians by birth is prohibited. It's in this context that Escobar negotiated his surrender. In this historic moment of the rendition of arms by the guerrillas, and of peace in my homeland, I could not remain indifferent to the longings of peace of the vast majority of the Colombian people. Gaviria also allowed Escobar to choose where he would be incarcerated. Not everyone was happy with this arrangement, namely the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency. At the time, Joe Toff was the DEA's station chief in Colombia. Even though the government was denying that these negotiations were going on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The police knew they were going on. We knew they were going on. And the day that he turned himself in, it was a very, very bad day for law enforcement, a very bad day for DEA, a very bad day for the police. We were sick. We were so disappointed that he turned himself in because in essence, we felt defeated because he turned himself in under his own conditions to his own prison that he built. And uh, that's kind of unusual for a law enforcement trying to, you know, prevent the surrender of a criminal. So um, it was pretty interesting time. Gaviria's moves were controversial, but the reality was that a lot of Colombians couldn't sleep at night, couldn't walk down the streets, couldn't send their children to school without fear of violence from the narcos. For Jotov and the DEA, Escobar was almost like a trophy they were hunting. For Gaviria, peace, was the number one priority. Toft has a problem, and it was very clear in the case of General Massa. Miguel Massa Marquez was a general in the Colombian army who was implicated in the assassination of the presidential candidate Luis Carlos Galán, as well as other scandals connecting him to organized crime and money laundering in Colombia. Toft stood up for General Massa. He stuck his neck out for him. But it turns out, Massa was guilty. Toft is the only person that thinks Massa is innocent. I've never held him in high regard. Joe Toft thought that Escobar's surrender was a mistake. But President Gaviria's government thought that having him behind bars was worth the sacrifice. But this strategy, of course, was totally dependent on keeping Escobar imprisoned and relatively under control. President Gaviria had agreed to let Pablo Escobar choose where he would be imprisoned. Escobar chose a place in his native Envigado, a prison that he himself would build, a prison that would become known as La Catedral. Here is Jorge Cardona, correspondent for Colombia's Radio Caracol at the time. Pablo Escobar had so much power at that time that he wasn't sent to a conventional prison. No. This was more like a private club. President Gaviria, however, says that the plan was always to get Escobar there first, and while he was in there, transform the building into a proper prison. A critical issue concerning Escobar's transfer to La Catedral 
was how to guarantee he wouldn't be killed during transportation. This guy had some formidable enemies, and it would have been a disaster if anything happened to him. So we took him to a building in Envigado, which is the town where he's from, and the moment he was in custody, we began to build a prison around him. Miguel Silva was Cesar Gaviria's chief of staff. His view of the plans to transform La Catedral into a prison is quite different from that of Gaviria's. The government was totally incompetent, and the construction of the prison never really advanced. The Israeli company in charge kept getting robbed every time they tried to move materials. That kind of thing was common in Antioquia, where everyone was corrupted by Escobar. They thought progress was being made, but it really wasn't. The ministry thought the project was moving forward because they received reports they said so. But nobody bothered to go check. You know, the type of things that happen in Latin America. Despite the lack of progress in turning La Catedral into a proper prison, that would be forgiven if Escobar's reign of terror ceased its operations. But much to President Gaviria's frustration, that was not the case. The reports from the Attorney General's office didn't say he was committing crimes, but it did say that Pablo Escobar had luxuries. Sure, there were rooms and places to sleep, but it's not like they had gold-plated beds. No, 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 no. But this wasn't typical prison life, which is not uncommon when gangsters are in prison. This kind of thing happens even in the United States. Pablo Escobar's sister, Luz Maria, alleges that the supposed luxuries of La Catedral had been overblown. You know, I'm not going to say that they were like real luxuries. No, I know what luxury is. They had the usual stuff, and they weren't extravagant or overly expensive. But some people didn't see it that way and thought that it was very expensive. The beds were made of concrete. So no gold-plated beds, but there was a soccer field. At one point, Escobar invited Ivan René Higuita, the star goalkeeper for the Colombian national soccer team, to play a little match with him. Here is how Iguita himself described the scene in a magazine interview. A lot of Colombians assume that I was Pablo Escobar's friend. Once, I visited Pablo Escobar in La Catedral, and afterward, a reporter from RCN asked me if I was his friend, and I said yes. I had many friends who happened to be drug traffickers. For DEA agent Joe Toft, La Catedral, was an outrage. They had a discotheque, they built a soccer field, the uh, national soccer team used to go out there and play soccer with them, with Escobar and company. Obviously he gave them money, he gave them, you know, he paid them off. It was um, incredible. And um, they had um, orgies up there, they would bring girls all the time. They had, you know, it, it was like a country club in a way. But the problem wasn't that Escobar kicked a soccer ball around with René Guita. In fact, even an orgy or two could be tolerated. The real problem was that La Catedral became the new headquarters of Escobar's criminal enterprise. 
And those idiots that are after us, they say that we're criminals. But it turns out that they are torturers, kidnappers, murderers, and they want money. And they think we are lazy and dumb. They think that just because we're laying low, we don't have any more fight left in us. Those stupid motherfuckers, dumb pigs, I wish they were listening to me right now. Then they will know that I'm going to shake things up if anything happens to my men. Anyway, he knows that who laughs at last, laughs louder. As the weeks wore on, Escobar began pushing the limit. We kept hearing the stories about all sorts of crimes being committed. We knew that Pablo Escobar was still engaging in criminal activities while imprisoned. The crimes became more and more brazen until one day he finally crossed the line. Here's Jorge Cardona, the radio journalist. That was when the authorities realized they could no longer ignore the problem. What triggered the change of heart was the news that a few executions had been committed inside the prison. One day, two of Escobar's top capos, Gerardo Moncada and Fernando Galeano, walk into La Catedral to visit their boss. One of Escobar's lieutenants discovered that these two men were hiding money. Escobar had asked for a contribution for the war from all the drug traffickers. So a lieutenant told him what was happening. Pablo Escobar then told them, hey, out of the car, and told Fernando Galeano to go visit him at La Catedral. Well, they did not come out alive. They were killed and their bodies disappeared. Killing someone from his so-called prison was the straw that broke the camel's back, and it sealed Escobar's fate. And it wasn't just the fact that Escobar killed Moncada and Galeano. It was the way he did it. I'm going to say something that sounds outrageous, but we have confirmed that Escobar ate Moncada and Galeano. He put them on a grill. People went to eat meat and they ate human meat. At this point, the situation has become untenable for President Gaviria. He needed to get Escobar out of La Catedral and into a proper prison. But relocating him had its own challenges. Let's not forget that Escobar controlled everything in Envigado, including the prison's electrical system, as his sister Luz Maria confirms. I heard that several times. But yes, it's a fact that the circuit breakers of the prison were located in Pablo's room. He controlled the prison's electricity. On July 21st, 1991, just a month after Escobar's surrender, the administration's security council created a plan to move Escobar. Miguel Silva, the president's chief of staff, describes the scene. The Security Council worked all day on the 21st. We were in the crisis room. The idea was that his relocation would happen rather quickly, and we all thought this would be over by 8, period. It's hard to calculate the timing of a man like Escobar. And if there's anything that all of the accounts about him have in common is that he was always a step ahead. The nightmare for Gaviria's government was just beginning. We met all day and all night with Jaime Giraldo, the Minister of Justice, and Rafael Pardo, 
the general commander of the army and the armed forces, to set the best way to move Escobar from La Catedral to another place of confinement, a place where we had more control. We sent Eduardo Mendoza, the vice minister of justice, just to let them know we were serious, and Hernando Navas, the head of the national correctional system. Escobar took them as hostages as soon as they entered the prison. The relocation mission was not a simple one. How did we make sure Escobar wouldn't escape? We put the Medellin Brigade, one of our elite brigades, led by a general named Pardo Ariza, with a security ring around the prison with soldiers on guard 24-7. It was impossible to escape from La Catedral because of the security ring, but it turned out not to be good enough because we underestimated Escobar's ability to corrupt people. It was only afterwards that we found out that every soldier was receiving a small monthly salary from Escobar just so they would be kind to him. Hostage-taking had been one of Escobar's favorite methods of imposing his will. And now the government was essentially handing him two high-level hostages on a silver plate. The Vice Minister of Justice, Eduardo Mendoza, and the leader of the National Correctional System, Hernando Navas. The hostages tried to set up a direct line of negotiation between the government and Escobar. Here's Miguel Silva. The vice minister calls me from the prison, saying, I'm here, in the prison, hostage, and suddenly he cries out, get that gun out of my face. And then he says, Escobar wants to talk to you. And I tell him, I can't. I can't talk to Escobar. And I hang up. I couldn't. Escobar couldn't be allowed to have direct contact with the presidency of the republic. It's just something that cannot happen. Because if it did, it would mean the president's downfall, and I would have been in deep trouble. But that was when we knew things had gone south fast. Now the government had to send in troops to get the hostages out. The military decided that this was a job for the special forces. I thought that seemed too complicated. It was a waste of time. We needed something faster and easier, but they insisted on sending special forces. However, sending special forces meant that they had to summon soldiers from Bogotá. They had to gather everyone, appoint the head of the operation, and then send them to Medellín. The plan was to get to the jail and rescue those who had been kidnapped. The Colombian Army's 4th Brigade had already been stationed around the perimeter of La Catedral. But the army's leadership felt that it was not going to be enough, that they needed backup. Miguel Silva believed the right move was to not waste time and send the 4th Brigade in right away. Why doesn't the 4th Brigade take the prison? It's the biggest mystery that I... Uh, the 4th is a brigade trained to combat guerrilla forces with significant combat experience actual combat. They chose not to take the prison. President Gaviria agrees. But that decision regarding the special forces turned out to be a bad call. A very bad call. Miguel Silva describes just how difficult it was logistically to get the special forces unit to La Catedral. The trucks got lost in Medellín. Nobody knows why. Imagine a truck full of soldiers driving around at 2 or 3 in the morning lost in Medellín. It was absurd. Then they arrive at the military mobile checkpoint and they tell us that we cannot go through. 
that we will have to call Pardo Arisa. So I say, hand me the phone. Major Diaz, I think his name was. Imagine 60 soldiers with gear walking around at four of the morning. And once we were finally able to get inside the jail, we took control in just seven minutes. But of course, by that time, Scolar had already escaped. <laughs> 